Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball, this is the PBP Voices of Baseball. Drive the ball down the line in foul ground, and he's got it! And the Giants have won! They have won the World Series for the third time in five years! We bring you the people who bring you the game. Hello, my friends, my listeners, my fellow play-by-play acolytes, and welcome into the PBP. So one night, a couple of weeks ago, I was in baseball heaven. After the Cubs beat the Brewers, I had been at the ballpark. I got a ride home from Wrigley Field with friend of the podcast, John Boog Shambi. And as he apparently always does, he logged on to the MLB app and looked to see what good games he might plug into on the West Coast. And there they were, the Giants and the Reds, with Alex Cobb having gone seven no-hit innings. So together, as we made our way down Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, we listened to the eighth inning of John Miller. Lucky me. Miller has an incredible tone of voice, a poetic sensibility, an endless trove of inflections and expressions that add layers of nuance anytime he wants. It is artistry. Maybe you got to know John when he and Joe Morgan were the iconic voices of Sunday Night Baseball for a long, long time on ESPN. But he did the Orioles before that and now has been with the Giants for a long time and is a deserved Ford C. Frick Award winner, Hall of Famer. He's also incredibly comfortable. He's empowered to say whatever he wants, describing anything and everything, trusting his instincts. So, look, John Miller's the best. Boog loves him. And quickly, we in the car were gifted with a great example. There was a moment that I, I, I won't do it justice, but trust me, there's a foul ball high off to the left and out of play, just below the moon. It is not full, but it's close. Full moon tomorrow, in fact. See, here's the deal, folks. He saw the moon, and then so did we. And he doesn't, like, go through painstaking big efforts to tell you, hey, I saw the moon. He just tells you he saw the moon. I'm reminded of when Howie Rose of the Mets told us what he learned when he worked with Gary Cohen on the radio years ago. Describe, describe, describe. I ended that night sitting on the balcony, listening to Cobb throw 131 pitches, getting one out away before Spencer Steer broke up the no-hitter, and it was incredibly entertaining and informative to be with John Miller for all of that. 
Boog helped us connect with his friend John, and we are grateful. Hopefully you will be as well as you listen to this conversation. He has a phenomenal origin story involving an old baseball board game, which we get to pretty quickly, and later extensive comments on the Orioles and Kevin Brown, which I don't believe he has offered anywhere else. All right, so this is, of course, the PBP Voices of Baseball, where we dive in and dissect play-by-play. In a uh, tumultuous uh, year for me personally, when I've actually gotten to do a little bit of the games, I have been drinking up the advice of everybody we talk to. And all advice roads have led me to this man, who uh, is one of the first people I thought about that I wanted to to talk to. John Miller, I will go ahead and call it. Um, You are the greatest baseball play-by-play broadcaster alive. I don't think that's an opinion. I think that is objective fact, and I could back it up if need be. But uh, welcome, and thank you for for doing this. Well, thanks for the compliment. Uh, my pleasure. And I love talking the game, and I love being around baseball fans. So, uh, uh, shoot, I'm ready. Is your Stratomatic broadcast creation story, is that origin story true? That is a phenomenal origin story that you would play Stratomatic and created recordings, added crowd noise and such. I, I would uh, play Stratomatic and some of my buddies in the neighborhood from school and whatnot, we would play Stratomatic. I'd draw up a schedule like a 60 game schedule and get uh, five other guys and we'd have a season and we would play the road games at that guy's house. Uh, Law Sorensen, who's now a, a lawyer and a mediator down in Santa Barbara. Uh, his was the best location. His was the great ballpark you wanted to go to for a road game because <laughs> his mom would put out uh, charcuterie plates, uh, plates, you know, with uh, oh, yes. cheeses and, and salami and, and prosciutto and whatnot. And she'd have some cold root beer and, and whatnot. So I would used to offer to, to Lau and say, listen, I know you're supposed to come to my house tonight. The hell with it. I'll just come to your place. Why should you have to bother with it? So uh, just make sure your mom knows that I'm coming. So uh, anyway, so we used to do that and and, and we had a lot of fun with it. But uh, I, I enjoyed the game so much. And it was a radio game in those days, especially out here on the West Coast. When uh, O'Malley brought the Dodgers out and then convinced Horace Stoneman to bring the Giants out, the... Uh, idea was that even though they televised all kinds of games when they were in New York, that that they shouldn't televise games uh, hardly at all when they got out here. The only games each team televised were the games at the other's ballpark. So uh, at until there was expansion in 62 in the National League, it was 11 games in L.A. that the Giants would televise and vice versa. So and then in, starting in 62, uh, they played each other 18 times, so nine games. And that was it. Hmm. So the game was a radio sport. We had Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. The Dodgers had Vince Scully and Jerry Doggett. And we could hear those games from L.A. The Dodgers were on a very powerful station, KFI. Uh, and it was kind of a starchy, uh, stiff upper lip kind of a station from what I could tell as a kid. You know, Vinny would pause for station identification. Now let's pause for station identification, you know. And you'd hear this stuffed shirt voice come on and say, this is 50,000 watt. Clear Channel Station, KFI, Los Angeles. Earl C. Anthony, Incorporated. And, you know, I was like, uh, wow. <laughs> I, uh, 
well, what kind of a station is that? But uh, so I kind of associated that with the Dodgers. They were just a bunch of stuffed shirts to a 10 year old me. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, the Giants were on KSFO, uh, which was a personality driven station. And I, I have no idea what KFI did the rest of the day when they weren't carrying the Dodgers. I don't know what was on their station. But uh, uh, KSFO was a personality kind of a station. And they had a lot of entertainers on all day. And they had these uh, jingles for the, the station. And, uh, you know, they pause, you know, Russ and I said, let's pause for station identification on the Golden West Radio Network. And you'd hear, uh, 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 this is Don Sherwood. I'm on every morning from 6 till 10 on KSFO in San Francisco. That's so and, much uh, more fun. It's so much more fun. So much more it, personality. It really was. You could tune in late at night and uh, you could hear uh, Al Jasbo Collins and you know stuff like that. So and they played some music. They had personality uh, jocks and whatnot. So uh, uh, anyway, they were a little bit different kinds of stations. But uh, so it was a radio game to us. Mm-hmm. And the play-by-play guys were our conduit. My my mom and dad, we they moved into a house. I think it was their dream house. It was an older house, and it was in the hills of Hayward in the East Bay. And from up there, we could see some of the bay and across the bay. And we could see Candlestick Park. From my room, an upstairs room, I could see Candlestick. When there was a night game, I could see the lights over there. And we got this little telescope so I could view Candlestick while I was listening to the game on the radio. And I really wanted Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons to quit talking whenever the public address announcer, Jeff Carter, would uh, announce the next batter because I wanted that whole experience of being at the ballpark. Wow. And through, through my telescope, I could see the upper deck uh, going down uh, along left field, along the left field line, and the, the back of the old scoreboard that was in right field. And uh, uh, I, I'll never forget the night the Beatles played their final concert. You know, it was the, their final public appearance. Uh, you know, I know they, they taped something on the roof of, of their building, and that was really their, their final uh, uh, get together, but no, but Candlestick Park is the legendary last concert, without a doubt. It was so. I had my little telescope, and I kept thinking, "Why am I not there? I should be over there at this concert. What am I doing?" And uh, because there, there were tickets available, it wasn't sold out. There was a good crowd, but I could see through the little telescope all the uh, flash bulbs going on. You know, people had their old camera, their instamatics, and whatnot. And it was nighttime, so they'd take a picture, and the, the flashbulb would, would pop off. And it was like sparkling over there, all these flashes going off. And uh, so I remember I could see that, from, but I couldn't hear it. So uh, uh, and, and apparently from all reports, it wasn't a great thing to hear. No, they, they hated it, John. They hated it. That's why they never played anymore. They couldn't control it. They couldn't hear the harmonies. All the people were screaming. It got in the way of uh, of yeah. the magic they were trying to create. There's so much good stuff in, in there. Um, I, it, it makes me want to jump around a little bit because the image of you wanting the broadcasters to be quiet so you could hear the PA announcer because you happen to be close enough to hear it it dovetails into the advice that I know that you gave our mutual friend, Boog Shambi, um, that has impacted me and impacted anybody else who's heard it, where you want to let the sounds of the ballpark be part of the broadcast, be it the pop of the mitt or the crack of the bat or the PA announcer doing the introduction when possible. It strikes me that that advice, which is so beautiful, 
is perhaps connected to your experience as a kid wanting the broadcasters to be quiet. <laughs> well, uh, the Jacks had a great public address announcer named Jeff Carter, and he's been in some some movies way back when uh, where they had scenes filmed at Candlestick Park. And uh, and you can hear him in the background. One was a, a made for TV movie. And I, I don't even remember the name of it. But I know Peter Falk was in it and uh, some some well-known actors were in it. And they were guys, middle class businessmen and uh, unhappy marriages. And they, they were dissatisfied with their lives. But they would get together at Candlestick every Tuesday night and, and see a game. And they I don't know, they concocted some uh, 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 an idea to rob a bank or whatever they did or uh, it's a not brinks the brinks truck. job it's not the brinks is it the brinks job oh maybe maybe I, maybe I, maybe it was i saw that uh, in the theater maybe it was so they're they're at candlestick so every time they're at candlestick you hear jeff carter in the background announcing batters and whatnot and the movie ends uh because jeff carter had a great baritone voice and he used to sing the national anthem you know he'd say now ladies and gentlemen please rise and join in singing our national anthem and uh and then the organist would start to play and jeff carter would sing the national anthem i found out later he, he got paid extra if he sang the anthem wow. so uh, i filled in for him at a hockey game the old california golden seals and they gave me 40 bucks for being the pa announcer they said can you sing the anthem? And I said, well, uh, I, I, uh, I probably, I've sung it in the shower and, uh, I didn't tell him, you know, and in my Stratomatic uh, games, but, uh, uh, so, <laughs> so you guys sang the anthem, the kids sitting at Stratomatic road games oh, with, no, the, with no. the kid whose house it was do the anthem. How did that work? <laughs> this is me. If I was just playing Strat uh, solo, but, uh, okay. Uh, okay. so, uh, but I would, you know, if I was in a basement or a garage, any place that had a little echo, I would announce the Giants lineups and then uh, sing the national anthem. So uh, it was it was kind of embarrassing if you knew who I was. I was like, what's that? Is there a radio on? What's going on down there? Wow. Is it, oh, it's it's our son. Don't ask. So uh, anyway, uh, but they said it's forty dollars to be the PA announcer for the hockey game. But if you can sing the anthem, we'll give you fifty. So I considered it. I thought, wow, an extra 10 bucks. That's pretty good. But uh, I thought I've, I've never sung the anthem in, in uh, public. So it's probably not the smartest thing to do. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so Jeff, at the end of this movie, these guys get arrested at Candlestick. The, the cops come and get him. They put him in the paddy wagon. And the guys driving the paddy wagon are listening to the Giants game. And, oh. and now you hear Russ just say, now here's uh, our national anthem. And then Jeff Carter sings the national anthem as the camera, you know, very artistically shows these guys' faces with their, they're thinking, what have we done? And what, oh, what God. And, and there's Jeff singing that. And so it was, you know, some sort of a thing about America in those days, I suppose was the message. But uh, for me, it was Jeff Carter singing the anthem. He's got the whole anthem there as they roll the closing credits. Wow. What a movie. So play-by-play so play, uh, or, or, or PA announcers also must be singers. Noted. I, I, I will I will take that under advisement uh, in case I ever get that gig. So, so John Miller, um, you doing Stratomatic reminds me of um, when I was a kid uh, growing up in New Jersey, my dad was a Ted Williams fan and a Red Sox fan. So we all became Red Sox fans. And my brother used to have a game on the wall. He'd paint Fenway Park on the wall and move baseball cards around as the game went on. 
as he listened to the Boston Red Sox radio network. And and I heard, just like you heard the station ID from L.A., I heard, you're listening to 1080 WTIC, Hartford, Connecticut. That was the station we could pick up from Jersey, right? But in 1980, some new guy, some new guy came along, 80, 81, 82, right? I mean, y- you worked with those guys, John Miller. You invaded my my house in my basement for a little while. It, 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 what? How was that to be all of a sudden doing games at Fenway? You had done a year in Oakland, a couple in Texas, and, uh, and then all of a sudden you're doing Red Sox games at Fenway. I had to get out of a contract in Texas, and uh, I just thought, man, uh, Ken Coleman called me. He wanted me to come work with him in Boston. And really, the, the Red Sox, uh, Kurt Gowdy had done the games, and Ken Coleman came in for Kurt Gowdy. And Gowdy did the games for a long time. He finally left the Red Sox because he had this gig at NBC to become the national voice for the World Series and the Rose Bowl and the Super Bowl and the Final Four. You name it, Kurt Gowdy yeah. was doing it in those days. So uh, he left, and Ken Coleman, who grew up in Boston and had been doing the Cleveland Indians games, and it was his dream job. They offered him the job to replace Kurt Gowdy. So he's like, are you kidding? I'm there. I'm there yesterday. Uh, so, And he came in and worked with Ned Martin. And uh, so they were partners for a long time. And then Ken left the Red Sox radio to do the TV. Uh, I, I think he and Mel Parnell maybe were partners. And then he and Johnny Pesky were partners when I started with Oakland in 74. And then... Uh, they changed TV stations. Uh, Channel Channel 38 became the Red Sox flagship. And Ken left and went to Cincinnati and did uh, Reds TV. He was on TV when Marty Brenneman first broke in as the Reds radio broadcaster. So anyway, it's a a crazy uh, story about how all of this works. But ultimately, on radio, they hired with Ned Martin, Jim Woods. He got fired in Oakland. And when he got fired in Oakland, that's when I got hired to do my first major league broadcast when I was 22 years old. Because Jim Woods got fired, which, I mean, he was outstanding. And he and Woods, they used to call him Martin and Woods in Boston in the 70s. And the Red Sox were great. They started together in 74 and then 75. And 75, they went to the World Series. And, man, the Red Sox fans just love those two guys together. And Ned Martin, I think, uh, outside of Boston and people of a certain age, is not well remembered and, and not, I think, well appreciated. He, he should be in the Hall of Fame, in, in my opinion, um, because he was, he was great at it and he was well-spoken and he, he was fun. So not funny, but just fun because he knew how to use the language. Boston is one of those places where where baseball is, is king and you have made your way to Baltimore um, and obviously now to San Francisco for for a long and, and, and illustrious stay. I, I, I took pride on the day job of uh, as I'm a talk show host here in, in the Chicago in, in making sure that people knew the history of the elder Angelos and what happened the first time around when the Kevin Brown story swept our, our industry a, a couple of weeks ago. And I wonder what that was like for you to see 
to see that happening to a great young broadcaster, Kevin, in, in, in some of the ways that were a little bit similar, it seems, um, from the outside to what happened with you when you were there. What was that well, like I, for you? Uh, I was getting a lot of text messages and emails from people, uh, probably everybody that I've ever met or uh, uh, ever even, uh, you know, maybe bumped into on the street uh, somewhere along uh, life. But uh, so I was getting a lot of links to these stories about it. And I did read one of them. And and I, I ended up with having a thousand questions about it because, you know, the, the, the Orioles uh, denied suspending him and uh, he wasn't talking about it. And his agent wasn't talking about it. And I could understand that. That's a tight spot you, because he, he loves the job. He wants to keep the job and and whatnot. So I was just I had a lot of questions, though, like, well, I don't even know what's really going on it, because it, it was impossible for me to believe that he could be suspended for what they were claiming he was suspended for, which was apparently uh, quoting a note that the Orioles had published in their press notes. And and then they had made a TV graphic of for him to read off the screen. And then he gets suspended for that. And I said, I refuse to believe that there's, there's no, that, that is not just not, not logical. It's, it's preposterous. So, uh, there must be more to this story. So, uh, plus, I felt like when I was moved out uh, after the '96 season, and I wanted to stay at the time, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So they did me a huge favor, and so I moved to San Francisco. So I thought, well, people want to ask me about it, and on radio and television and whatnot for newspapers. <laughs> And I don't want it to come out like I'm still 27 years later upset about it. That's the furthest from the truth. I'm grateful and that it worked out that way, even though I was too uh, ignorant to realize that at the time that that was going to be the best possible thing for me was to go to San Francisco. But uh, anyway, and I, I, I do uh, feel for Kevin Brown. And I, I also feel like... Uh, because now the New York Times had a story, a story the other day about uh, John Angelos, a feature about him, mm -hmm. which also left a lot of questions unanswered. Uh, he started talking about being a small town team and they wouldn't be able to afford to keep all this great young talent that they have unless they uh, hiked up the ticket prices. And, you know, and, uh, you know, it's like, what? He's he's buying this kind of stuff. Come on. And, and but he also sort of said to the something to the effect the inference of what he said was in re regards to Kevin Brown was that he was going to do an investigation as to uh, how this kind of a thing could happen and what yep. sort of a, a, a policy would uh, make that happen. And, and he was going to get to the bottom of it and then make sure that nothing like that would ever happen again, as if what he didn't know anything about it uh, or he wouldn't even know who to call without having an investigation to find out, even though he runs the whole show. Uh, so, and, and, and there was apparently no follow-up question from the writer who wrote the thing. So Now I'm looking at the quote right here. Nothing like that is going to happen again. It shouldn't have happened once. Uh, who, who who made it happen, John? It's pretty confusing. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I, I, uh, uh, I, I feel for him. The funny thing was when the Orioles played in Tampa Bay, the series, where this thing all came out. It was a four-game series. The Giants had just arrived in Washington, D.C. on a Thursday night. Huh. Game one of that series in Tampa Bay. I got up to my hotel room in Georgetown.
I'm waiting for my suitcase and I find the Orioles telecast uh, on the, what is it, Masson. And I, I recognize Ben McDonald and I don't recognize the play-by-play guy. I hadn't heard him before. You know, I don't see Orioles telecast per se uh, nowadays, but uh, I do remember thinking, wow, this is a really good game. It was late in the game, this big showdown series. And these guys are really good together. So, and then at some point they put him on camera and he said that his name was Kevin Brown. I thought, oh, okay, Kevin Brown. I've heard that name, but I'd never heard him. And it was funny because I remember thinking, he sounds a lot like Joe Buck, which I guess if you're going to sound like somebody, Joe Buck's a good one to sound like. Uh, he's one of the, the, the best guys in the business. Try to sound like the guy making 17 million a year. That's a good idea. So, uh, so later on, when I started getting all these text messages about, about this story about Kevin Brown, that's what I remembered. He says, wow, that's the, the, the series later in that series yeah. that I watched that first game or the last three innings or so of that first game. Did I he reach out did to a you? Great job. Did he reach no, out to you at all, John? Okay. No, not at all. Huh? Yeah, so, it just got. I, I think the big takeaway from this has been what it always has been, and what it remains is that fans want an honest appraisal of the team. You are obviously free to do so, um, with 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 your stature, and some of the younger guys feel that pressure as if they're not allowed to just simply speak the truth about the quality of play. That's what fans want, though. Has, hasn't that been your experience? Absolutely. The, the only real value that a broadcaster can bring to the team that he's with, uh, I mean, obviously he's got to know the game. He's got to be good at it and entertaining and, and all of that kind of stuff, but is to win the, the trust of the fans that whatever you're telling them, they can trust you that that's the case. So if there's a young guy comes up from the minor leagues and everybody in the organization is excited that this guy's going to be really good. For instance, the Giants brought up Patrick Bailey this year, the catcher for the minor leagues. Uh, what value do we have if we say, now this guy is really good. He's, he's, he's good at this. He's good at that. And the people are like, oh, there he goes again. Miller uh, singing the praises of another one of these Young guys from the minors who's probably going to be a washout. So we're, we're of no use to the ball club at all if that's the feeling that uh, people have about what we're telling them. So uh, I, I think I, re, I always point to that there was a, a game, my la- one of my last games with the Orioles in the postseason in 96 was uh, Jeter hitting a, a home run that tied the game to right field where the, the fan, Jeffrey Mayer, Orioles oh, yeah. fans still remember this guy's name in infamy. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, Jeffrey Mayer. Yeah. And, uh, so that he, he reached, reached over reached the right out. field wall. Yeah. Yep. And the umpire, there were no replay review at that time. The right field line umpire, uh, signaled home run. So there was no, uh, recourse. You couldn't appeal it. You couldn't ask anybody to look, but I watched the whole thing on live television. I, uh, when I started doing a lot of TV, I started realizing I need to see what the viewers are seeing. And uh, anytime there was a ball at the wall like that, I would immediately look over at the monitor because they would have a close-up of it. And I could see if the guy made a leaping catch and kept the ball from being a homer. I could see if he if he didn't catch it 
Or in this case, I saw that the fan reached out and kept Tony Tarasco from making that catch. So then I was immediately, when I saw the umpire signaling home run, because uh, I described it on the radio that way. This is a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitching Garcia is calling it a home run. And Tarasco is asked to argue a terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all tied up. But the, the point was, what use would I have been to the Orioles if I was such a homer and my reputation was such that you know the, the Orioles were just always getting screwed by the umpires and everything was always against uh, you know the Orioles and, and whatnot so uh, hmm. uh, but you know so I think uh, that's what you, you first and foremost you have to win that trust that they can believe what you're telling them uh, that, that, that that's the case and uh, you know, I, even even in, in simple things like uh, uh, maybe uh, getting a pitch wrong, you know, the I say, uh, you know, a, a fastball in there for a strike, and no, no, I think I think that was probably a changeup, uh, and the radar gun got it at, at 89. He's been throwing his fastball at 96. So I want to, and I say that not just to get it right, but also to make the fans see that I'm going to tell them exactly what I'm seeing. And if I get it wrong, I'm going to correct it. So that mm -hmm. even those simple aspects of it, that you can uh, trust that I'm giving you the complete accurate picture of the game. So yeah. that's where you start, I think, as a play-by-play -play guy. And obviously, Kevin Brown uh, has that because he's extremely popular in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And he's good at it. He's entertaining. And, uh, and he's got a great feel for the game. So I think anybody would, would love to have him. I was talking to Phil Orleans at ESPN yesterday. I did this, uh, what do they call it? The uh, uh, Michael K and uh, Alex Rodriguez. Had the K-Rod cast, yeah. The K-Rod cast, yeah. So I was a, a guest that they used in the third inning of the Sunday night game on, on Sunday night. And so uh, I was asking him about because uh, he said they, they were talking about talking to me about that and uh, about the Kevin Brown thing. And in, anyway, he thought it was a bad idea. He discouraged them from asking me about that. Hmm. Uh, and I, I told him, well, I'm fine with that. I don't have anything to say other than, well, I don't know this. I don't know that. And nothing, it doesn't make sense. You know, so because no. it wasn't really anything that happened to me. No, I know. I was you, with the Orioles. You know, you're, you're it never happened to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah sorry about I that. Would, I worked for three years there and never heard a word from anybody, you know? So uh, hmm. then when, when I was trying to get a, uh, my new contract negotiated and they wouldn't even negotiate, uh, I was getting this feedback through my, my lawyer, my agent, Ron Shapiro, uh, that he wasn't happy about this, happy about that. And I said, well, uh, and he said, maybe let's have a lunch and hash this out and, and you're, you can tell him your ideas and the best way to do it and why you do this and that. And, and I said, well, I do that, except I never heard a word from him for three years. He's my boss. He paid my checks. Yeah. Uh, so it's not ringing true to me that he's, he's had this big issue with me. So uh, let's make the deal and then, then let's have this lunch. And, uh, and because I'll be the first to say, you're in charge. You're, you're my boss. You're not happy about something. Well, call me. Let me know. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's talk about it. So uh, uh, 
Anyway, so I think that that's, that's really all that happened in my case. In my case, I think they just really wanted me gone. So, uh, and thank goodness they did because uh, I went to San Francisco and, and uh, has, I've never looked back. So, and the loss is, the the loss is theirs. Right, oh, there we go. The loss is theirs because when you get the Ford C. Frick Award and are inducted, it's as San Francisco Giants broadcaster. As I promote this podcast, it is San Francisco Giants broadcaster. And, uh, and, 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 and the way that you talk about it and feel that connection with your youth is, is beautiful. That's the dream is that you get, end up working for a team and aging as we work for a team that is the one that you loved growing up. John Miller, I, 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 you're so generous with your time and I appreciate it. A few quickies about play-by-play um, specifically for some of the young broadcasters who I know do listen. Um, what is one part of your game prep that you can't ignore? Like I have to do this or else I do not feel prepared once the game begins. I think, uh, let me just preface that by saying the great thing, people say, man, you've been doing it for so many years, do you still enjoy it? And, and I always answer that I absolutely still enjoy it. And one of the great things that I love about it is even on those nights where maybe I'm tired, I've been on the road, and I just really want a night off, and maybe go out to dinner with my wife and go see a movie or just have the night to ourselves and not go to the ballpark tonight. But I have to go. And sometimes it's hard even to say, okay, and I've got to go to the park now. And maybe in another five minutes and then I'll go, you know. So, but as soon as I head to the ballpark, my mind is filled with things that I need to ask the manager uh, about a play the, the day before or uh, why he made this move. Or maybe I need to ask Brandon Crawford about a play he made at short and what was going on in that play for him. Uh, how's this infield playing? Uh, because there was looked like a little bad hop on, on a ball last night. So I'm filled with all of this stuff about things I need to ask about. And that is the big preparation. Uh, I think I used to prepare uh, before we had the internet, you know, when I did the Red Sox games and later when I did the Baltimore games, I'd go to the newsstand every day. And in Baltimore, we had the Baltimore Sun, the Baltimore Evening Sun, the Baltimore News American. We had the Washington Post, the Washington Times. Uh, we had the Philadelphia Inquirer came in. We had the New York Daily News, the New York Post, the New York Times. We got all those uh, editions. And I, you know, the USA Today came into being. So I'd go out and I'd buy nine or 10 papers every day. And I'm pouring through those sports sections, just trying to get as much information as I could get to have that swimming around in my brain, uh, to have one I might need it in the broadcast that night. And uh, that's the way that I used to prepare. Now we had the internet later on. I came out with the giants and they, they, they gave us computers with internet access and whatnot. And I'm trying to figure that out. And there was so much information that was available. And I wanted to get all of it because I thought, well, I want to be fully prepared. And then I'd look at my watch. It's like, man, I started this at nine in the morning. Now it's three o'clock. I need to uh, get dressed and go to the game. I got to go to work. Yeah. And all I've been doing is, is all, reading all this stuff. And, and I, I realized I can't do that every day. I can't try to get every last bit of every information from every city every day. And so I need to uh, to figure out what what's important to know and and mm -hmm. and just go from there. So I think it's important to know the team that's coming into town, what's happening with them, 
which one of their key players maybe is not available and to know why you need to know what happened to that guy mm. uh, or even if, if you, you, you know that he hit a foul ball off his foot and he had to leave that game and he missed the next game uh, and he's back now but uh, just to have that in your in your head that that he hits a foul ball off his foot that night that you know that he just did that three days before yeah. and had to miss a game because of it well, you know whatever you just want to know as much as you can about those two teams but I think one thing you do learn I think a lot of young guys, and this is, I would uh, caution to guard against this, that the job is about filling in the time between pitches and between batters. So guys gather all these statistics and he's been hot lately and how hot's he been? He's uh, hit safely in eight straight games and he's got 14 hits and he's hitting uh, 412 or, you know, whatever. Uh, so that's all well and good, but, uh, I think the main thing is to focus on the game itself. The, the best thing that's happened is the pitch clocks and the, the game is moving the way it should be moving. It's, it's moving the way it used to move when, when I started out. Uh, you know, they played the game. If a guy kept backing out of the box, the pitcher was going to scream at him and threaten to, uh, you, you know, stick one in his ear and maybe, uh, end his life, you know. That was a that was a real threat in those days. The, the game is happening all the time now. So it, you, Ernie Harwell used to say, the great Ernie Harwell, he would never tell a story unless he could get the whole story, start to finish, between pitches or between batters, and because it was the game. Hmm. Uh, don't get in the way of the game. If you could do it between pitches, okay, tell your story. And I said, well. Speaking, on, I believe, on behalf of all baseball fans everywhere, we want you to tell every story you've got because you're a treasure and it's so entertaining and we want to hear them. And he said, no, that would be uh, me getting in the way of the game. And that's not the job. So, hmm. And Ernie was so beloved in Detroit. We were there at the end of the year where uh, Bo Schembechler, was the, the former football coach, was the president of the time, and he fired Ernie. So Ernie had his final season and people were just outraged and the newspapers, the free press and uh, uh, the, D the Detroit news, they both had special sections while we were in town late that year of everybody had written in their top reminiscences and most special memories of Ernie. And these things were so affectionate about family, about uh, being with loved ones and sharing moments with their their dad before he died and all this kind of stuff. It just tugged at your heart. And I thought back to Ernie telling me about always giving the score at least every 60 seconds and always recapping with each hitter who came up so that, you know, within a, that half inning, they would, the listener would not only know what the score was, but a good picture of maybe how the game got to be that score. And they're up to speed now. So now they're with you and maybe they'll listen to you longer because nobody was ever mad at Ernie. They, hmm. they loved him. They were so affectionate for Ernie. And I realized that that was probably a big reason, even though people themselves didn't realize it. Uh, because when you tune in a game and that guy doesn't give you the score, you get real frustrated early on. Absolutely. You get frustrated. You get Give me the score. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, is that too much to ask? <laughs> and you're right to be upset about it. Yeah. Well, nobody ever experienced that with Ernie. So I think he was a genius of the medium. And 
that would be the, the, the biggest advice I could give to any young broadcaster. Give the score and give it again and again and again. I always contended that baseball is the best radio sport because, you know, we had shifts and all this kind of stuff going on. But a guy hits a fly ball to left field. Everybody knows the geography, where left field is. And he hits a ground ball to third. They know where the third baseman is, you know, sort of. Uh, now I say there's a ground ball to short. The third baseman's there. He picks it up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way it works. But, uh, uh, you know, so in, in basketball, anybody might be anywhere on the court at any given moment. So you've got to – but you can say ground ball to short, and the people can call up an image of, of where that ground ball went. And uh, so uh, – and I think that sometimes great moments in a game can be more vivid on a radio broadcast – and for people who are watching it on television, Ernie used to say, the telecast is the movie, the radio broadcast is the novel, the book itself. Huh. Because the fan, the listener on a radio broadcast is an active participant with the play-by-play -play man, taking his descriptions and turning them into images in the mind's eye that are unique to that person. And, uh, you know, if you, if you sit at the ballpark at Fenway Park on the first base side uh, and then you hear a game from Fenway on the radio, you might be translating those images based on your view when you usually are at the, at the ballpark. So you're seeing it differently from the way they're showing it to you on television. And yeah. it also can bring up memories of the last time you were at Fenway and that can carry you away from the broadcast. So now you're thinking about something and all of a sudden you say, Wait a minute, he just said there's two men on. How'd they get two men on? I, I missed that entirely. So as the broadcaster, you also have to realize that people's minds will wander because they're, they are actively uh, turning these things, your, your descriptions into images. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you've got to keep trying to grab them back. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Raphael Devers comes to the plate and you say, uh, here's Rafi Devers, a left-handed hitter. He gets into a deep crouch, opened up stance, paint that picture. You're trying to grab the people and pull them back with you at, at every moment like that. So just go ahead and even the guys who that you know, they already know he's left-handed because he's one of the great players in the game. But, you know, uh, Otani, left-handed hitter, big and strong, and, and describe his uh, stance up there. Grab them and pull them into the ballpark with you. You demand their attention to what you're telling them. So, uh, hmm. so those, those I think are, are part of it. And doing a bunch of statistics and little notes that are available in the in the press notes. Uh, Shohei Otani in the last uh, 15 games, he's got six home runs and 18 runs batted in. He's been so hot. He's he's had 23 hits and 67 at bats, a uh, 341 uh, batting average. You know, it's radio. It's a bunch of numbers, and the, the people are like, uh, what? What, what did it, you know, paint the picture and give them this battle. Focus entirely on Otani and that pitcher. What's the pitcher doing? Uh, where is that pitch? Uh, what, what's the next pitch li liable to be? Focus pitch after pitch and paint that picture, and don't allow anything about any other aspect of it interfere with, with that. You've got them right where you want them right now, 
They've got Otani. They maybe have a, one of the great, you know, Justin Verlander facing him, uh, two greats uh, facing off head to head, and just go with that. Uh, if there's something about the wind blowing in from right, could knock a ball down, or it's blowing out, even better yet, could get a push. Well, let's emphasize that. And, uh, uh, you know, as the, the defense, how are they playing? All that's relevant, but focus on that at bat and don't let any other thing get in the way. Wow, is that the greatest stuff in the world? That that last five minutes, my goodness! I uh, I just want to bottle it and uh, inject it into my veins every once in a while. John Miller, that's that that's the stuff. Um, all right, uh, last thing for you as we wrap up, and you, you've been so excellently generous. I'd pick a moment, a call that you're proud of, that you do feel captured a moment on the radio the way it should. I mean, I've got a couple in mind. Um, you know, be it be it Bumgarner in the World Series, and it's such a uh, a treat for a local broadcaster to get to do that, or or Bonds seven fifty six. But is there is there something that feels uh, monumental in baseball history that you're thrilled to have been there for and felt like you captured in a way that that makes you proud? Well, you know, it's hard for me to uh, look back at one of the, the ones that stand out for me. Uh, for instance, when the Orioles in 1988 lost 21 in a row to start the year, and I'm doing those broadcasts, you know, yeah. and, and then they finally won a game in Chicago and then lose the next two. They come home on a Monday night with Texas in town with a record of one and 23. And there was a grassroots effort of starting with a disc jockey uh, named, I think his name is uh, Pete, Pete Rivers and uh, uh, or Bob Rivers, maybe, uh, and all these people were calling him saying, I feel so bad for the Orioles. They're making jokes about him on late night TV and whatnot. And uh, uh, I just want to tell him that I, I still love him. I'm behind him and we're, we're still rooting for him. And uh, they're still our guys. And he was getting so many of these calls from these Orioles fans. And he said, listen, you, you need to tell them yourselves. Uh, Monday when they get home, uh, get tickets and go out there. Call your friends, have them get tickets. And tell them yourselves. And, and, and then he, it, it became this uh, like an, an avalanche of, of ticket buying. There was no involvement by the ball club. It wasn't a, they weren't giving anything away that night. It was the fans prompted by this disc jockey. And 50,000 fans showed up. 50,000 fans don't show up when a team is really bad. Uh, what, what happens is the fans are indifferent to that team. They're like, ah, you know. I may go to a game, but uh, I'm not excited about going to a game. Well, 50,000 of them showed up, and the, the first bat of the game was a guy named Odeby McDowell. I'll never forget. Jay mm -hmm. Tibbs was the pitcher, and uh, Odeby McDowell hits a pop-up. And I say, here's a swing and a high pop-up. Uh, Ripken out near shortstop. But as soon as I say high pop-up, you hear, the, the 50,000 go nuts that he's gotten him to hit a pop-up. Uh, Ripken's under it, and He's got it. <laughs> it's like game seven of the World Series out there. Wow. It kind of gives me goosebumps even now just remembering the whole thing. And the Orioles ended up, I think they, they were ahead maybe nine to one into the ninth inning of a game. And uh, you know, Texas got two or three runs in the night. Maybe the final was nine to three or nine to four, whatever it was. And I remember that old cliche, that, of, 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 uh, which is, I thought was never, ever even a, hint of truth to it that the fans helped him win this game well that night a team that was one in 23 and they blew the rangers out 
I thought that fan group helped them win that game. And, uh, you know, they went one and 23. And after that, they lost 13 of their next 18. <laughs> so I said, they're the only team in history to start a season historically bad and then go into a slump. So <laughs> you know, after 40 games, they were six and 34. And, uh, you know, the, and, and for me, it was, it was a, a great experience because I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I, I, I'll, I'll say that. But as a broadcaster, uh, the whole idea that it's not about whether your team is good. It's not about whether they win the game. It's just the love of the game and trying to depict the game and knowing that there's so many different ways that you can enjoy a ball game and different mm. things about the game. Well, you have a team that's six and 34, a quarter of the way into the schedule, and oh, and 21 before they ever even win a game at all. Uh, that tests that theory. And I think uh, I had to find out and, and dig deep to find things that. Uh, and Joe Angel was my partner, and, and he did a great job. It, it made us famous. You know, the Washington Post, the Sunday magazine of the Post, had a color spread with us on the cover uh, under a headline, uh, uh, O's Broadcasters, how do they make something so bad sound so good? And, uh, <laughs> so you know, uh, so it, it, was, it was crazy. We were doing interviews with the players were uh, – they were depressed. You know, they had great players. They had Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, Hall of Famers. Fred Lynn was on that team, outstanding players. Uh, and they were depressed. No, none of them were hitting. None of them, they couldn't win a game uh, to save their lives. So we, we were the ones, because they had like 250, 300 people. It was like the World Series every day from all over the country following this team. Cal used to call them the hostages. You can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> Until we win again, you're stuck here. Uh, call your, uh, go ahead, call your wife now. Tell her how much you miss her. But uh, uh, and, and I'm hoping for you we win tonight, so you'll be able to go see her tomorrow. But uh, uh, anyway, so uh, so they were interviewing us, and I remember uh, before the game, I'm in Frank Robinson's office. He was the manager, and it was killing him. If if you saw Frank after the game. He was just, it was the worst thing that ever happened in his life because he was a winner, one of the great players of all time. And, and now here he was, the first African-American manager in baseball history, and he could not help this mm. team get a win. But he would be the guy front and center. Uh, he was like doing stand-up comedy with all the writers in his office before games. So he was deflecting uh, all of this attention from the players sure. who were so down. And uh, so he says, John, if, when we win tonight, what are you going to say? Have you got it all planned out? And uh, so I said, well, I don't have it planned out, but how about this? Uh, 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 like the, uh, uh, the, the final out is made, and I'll say, and the Orioles have won this game. And so uh, it's just kind of stupid enough that it got a little bit of flat. And he says, why don't you do it like Russ Hodges when Bobby Thompson hit the home run? And uh, uh, the Orioles win the game. The Orioles win the game. The Orioles win the game. They're going crazy. They're going crazy. Whoa, whoa. And so I do, I do a, a version of that. And, and Frank and, and the writers are all the, the laughing about it. Say, yeah, that's a, that's, that's, that'd be a, a lot of fun. So now the game ends and it's not like a walk-off game. It's 
I don't know, they won nine to nothing. It was a blowout. After going 0 21, are you kidding me? They went in a blowout at Comiskey Park. But that's the way it played out. So then some a couple of writers stopped by the booth after the game and they said, What did you say when the, the game was over? And they'd been in Frank Robinson's office before the game. And I said, Well, I honestly have no memory of what I said. I, 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 only that it was nothing that you would want a transcript of. I don't think anybody will be quoting it in the paper tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I get the, the New York Times the next day, and the, the writer for the Times has a transcript of what I said. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> oh, and I thought, oh, well, that was pretty good. I I did handle it pretty well, I guess. Uh, uh, it's beautiful. I, I, lo- I love that example, John, because it's a game of failure and the players have to deal with the failure, uh, you know, it, it, the and, and the broadcasters have to deal with the entirety of a season, regardless of of, uh, of 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 what the results are. You just have to keep going. So that's a beautiful example. Thank you so much for the for the time and the uh, and, and the generosity. I, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation, sir. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I, uh, my pleasure and, and all the best to you. Hey, John. Thank you. You too. Man, we got to some amazing stuff there with John Miller. His reverence for Ernie Harwell and some of the advice he got from him. From Harwell to Miller, which gets us to Boog and to Joe Davis. And the immortality of the craft of play-by-play is something, isn't it? It's so meaningful to have this consistency throughout the decades. How about his call of the Jeffrey Mayer home run? I had never heard it. Fearlessly telling the truth in the moment on the local radio call. Amazing. Amazing. John notes that Harwell was fired unceremoniously by the Tigers before he wanted to stop. You heard other references from John to broadcasters getting fired in Oakland, in Boston. Of course, the Orioles and John parting ways as uh, Kevin Brown was threatened with uh, over the summer just a couple of months ago. Note the context that being fired or dismissed has for John Miller. He considers it the best thing that ever happened to him. Here he is, a living legend, broadcasting for a team he used to follow and listen to as a child. And the message for all of us in there, a message that I've shared with interns and producers and talk show hosts all my life. Let no employer define your talent and define how you see yourself as a broadcaster. Bosses move on. They jump for other opportunities. You, if you're talented, if you work hard and if you treat people well and improve, will outlast them. Keep making content. Keep dreaming big. Don't let the opinion of one boss or the financial decision of one corporate entity define the rest of your career. John Miller did not. Next week on the PBP, a wonderful guy who works in four sports actively and used to do a lot more than that. We talk play-by-play with Fox Television's Adam Amin as his MLB playoff duty approaches. And we also find out how his work as the voice of the Bulls and his NFL work, his college basketball work, informs his baseball sensibilities. I think you will dig it. My producer is Ryan Porth, who did an amazing job on this week, as he has done all season long. My collaborator is James Vickery. The theme music of the PBP comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. Find us, the PBP, Voices of Baseball, on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. The PBP, Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game.